before we get into the word, uh, I want to just take a minute. Um, I need to apologize to you as a church. Um, last Sunday afternoon, after the service, I was just decompressing, vegging out, and uh, um, stumbled upon a YouTube video that just made me laugh. And without thinking about it, I just threw it up on my personal Facebook page. Um, and the bottom line is, it, it just wasn't a video that was honoring to the Lord. Um, it was foolish talk and coarse joking and uh, just wasn't appropriate, particularly as a, a teacher that will be held to a higher standard. And so um, that was poor judgment on my part. And I think kind of failed to realize the, the degree to which um, the things that I post um, reflect back on us as a church and on Christ. And so um, I want to confess that to you and, and ask your forgiveness. Um, I, I owe that to you. At the same time, I just want to take an opportunity to, to highlight something beautiful. Um, I dropped that video and didn't think more about it. And, uh, and it was a brother from our church that saw it and, uh, and, and could easily have grumbled against others and caused division, could easily have just kind of been offended and watched me for what's next um, and, and been bitter there or just um, left it. Uh, but instead he loved me enough to, to call me out on it, to say, hey, this, this isn't right, this isn't honoring, um, and, uh, and we need that. Um, James 5.20 says, whoever brings a brother, brings a, a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over uh, a multitude of sins. Uh, he came with humility and scripture and grace. Uh, yes, it was hard on my pride. Yes, I did not enjoy the process. Uh, yes, it was... Uh, awkward and uncomfortable for him, but that's what love looks like, and that is so great to see happening in the church. Um, church, you have a sinner for a pastor. Um, we need to just get over that. Um, <laughs> um, and you have sinners for fellow church members, and uh, and so I hope we can continue in love and grace together to do these kinds of things and to walk that out. Um, when you see or are affected by the sin of a brother or sister that that, that we're willing to go to them, uh, Bible open and heart full of grace and love for them and, and have that conversation. And, and when that day comes that someone approaches you uh, and says, hey, this isn't quite right, um, I just en encourage you to start with the presumption that you're actually more sinful than they know you are um, and, and bite your tongue and listen. Um, we need that. And uh, in that way, as we as the church are speaking the truth in love to one another. We build ourselves up into the image of Christ and that's, that's the goal. So I'm, I'm thankful for a church where this is happening. I need that uh, and we need that together. So um, I just want to encourage us in, in that way. Um, but one of the other ways that we grow up into Christ um, is as we hear from his word. And so let's, uh, let's turn our attention to scripture this morning. Um, we're looking today at the priests and how they were to be clothed, and how they were to be consecrated, uh, set apart for the service of the Lord. Um, so as I said, Exodus chapter 28, and uh, I know I've warned you in the past that we've had a lot of ground to cover, a lot of scripture to look at. Uh, this is one of those weeks again, um, but I can tell you this, uh, next week is the Sabbath, which is a smaller chunk, and then we're going to be back into uh, Philippians Again, and uh, so I think this is the longest passage of scripture that we will deal with for months, if not years to come. Um, 
not to scare you. We have 111 verses to cover this morning. Um, so I hope you packed a lunch. Um, <laughs> we'll, try to, we'll try to move through them uh, without leaving anything behind, um, but quickly. Um, but let's, uh, let's pray before we go to God's word. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the grace that you have given us in surrounding us um, with brothers and sisters who love one another, who care uh, about your glory and who care to spur one another on. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray that you would challenge us, encourage us, build us up uh, in your truth. God, I pray we wouldn't get lost this morning in uh, a massive text, but you'd help us to see um, your grace in it, to see the image of Christ there. Uh, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be built up, that our understanding of uh, your glory and your gospel would be heightened this morning, and Lord, that our, our hearts would be uh, turned more and more toward you, and that your glory uh, would be on display in your church as we live um, as we ought to in, in light of this great gospel. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 28 uh, is about the priestly garments, these holy, sacred uniforms that they wore, and uh, Aaron as the high priest, and then his sons as the general priest. So the, the, the tribe of Levi were the, the priesthood, and Aaron is a Levite, and it's the children of Aaron who are the priests that serve in the temple, and who are eligible to be uh, high priest, uh, tabernacle, and then temple. Um, so Exodus 28, starting in verse 1, we'll break it up a little bit, read a piece at a time, and, and walk through it. Um, verse 1 Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood, these are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So uh, this is kind of the general command. Gather Aaron and, and his sons, and they will be the priests, uh, and they're to wear this special clothing. And uh, verse 2 says that this clothing is for glory and for beauty. Uh, it was to bring dignity and honor and majesty to their position. They are priests in the house of God. Uh, and, and so they were to wear these beautiful garments um, to display the wonder of this role. There are seven pieces of clothing that were to be made. Uh, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, a turban, a sash, and then it's not listed here, but a little later um, we see uh, even right down to linen undergarments. Um, so it's all there. Um, if you have that picture to throw up, this is what uh, it would have looked like uh, when completed. Uh, I have some nitpicks with this as I do with any of these. It's so hard to find a good picture that gets all the details right. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces, but, um, but we can leave that up, give you a picture of what we're talking about uh, as, we, uh, as we go along. Verse 6 picks up explaining the ephod. You shall make, whoop, that's not verse 6, where am I? And you shall make an ephod 
of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet yarns of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. You shall have two pieces, two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together, and skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in order of, the, of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in setting of gold filigree, uh, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. So uh, that's the ephod. The ephod is like an apron um, that goes underneath. You can see it over his shoulder and down on his, uh, on his legs. Um, it had these two shoulder pieces, and each shoulder piece had a stone um, with six names on each, the names of the tribes of Israel listed, engraved in stone. Uh, gold cords then hung from the shoulder piece, and from uh, those gold cords hung the breast piece, um, which is explained then in verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, a diamond, and a third row of jacinth, and agate, and amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel, and they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name of the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod, and you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod. At its seams, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings, to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. And so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. 
So this breast piece, um, I think this is one, I'm not sure. The breast piece is to be made of the same fabric as the ephod. I don't know that this picture grasps that, but it dawned on me. Maybe that's their take on the gold filigree, that it was covered and the stones set in it. Uh, either way, that's the breast piece. It's to measure a span. A span is the span of your hand. Typically around nine inches is what they had. And it's doubled over, so it makes a pocket. Uh, and uh, in that, uh, on, on the front of the breast piece then, uh, are these four rows of three stones. And three of the stones, um, row three actually, um, which is jacinth and agate and amethyst. Um, if we look at those Hebrew words, um, we actually have no idea what stones they were. Um, there's nothing to connect it to. They're not words that are used elsewhere. Um, so we're, we're making our best guesses on that. Um, and then the other nine are actually all listed in Ezekiel 28.13 uh, as being at least metaphorically part of uh, the Garden of Eden. And, and so we're back to this picture of not only beauty, but, but the beauty of the garden, the presence of God. And on each of those 12 stones uh, was engraved one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and so, um, again, he has the, the names of Israel on his shoulder, the names of Israel on these stones on his chest, You'll notice a few times it's called the breast piece of judgment. Um, that, that could also be translated the breast piece of decision. Um, we, we tend to have very negative connotations to judgment. That's not always the case. Um, but the idea is that it represented the will of God. And it was God's, God's judgment, God's decision. And so inside in this pocket uh, were these two pieces, the Urim and the Thummim. Um, we don't know a whole lot about them. They're often represented as a, a white stone and a black stone. That may be the case, um, and, and perhaps the idea was you would, you would come to the Lord with a question and, and draw out a stone, and maybe black was no and white was yes. It, it could have worked something along that way, um, but it was similar to, to casting lots. Um, they believed God was sovereign and that he would reveal his will this way, um, and, and he did. Uh, but just in case, I don't know if anyone has like big decisions on the horizon, um, we now have the full revelation of Scripture, uh, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, so we don't cast lots anymore. Um, don't, don't go pulling a rock out of a hat and calling that God's will. Um, this period of history is, is past. Um, next, we have the robe, uh, verses 31 and following. You shall make a robe of the ephod, all of blue, and it shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening like the opening of a garment, so that it may not tear. And on its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and around the hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he may not die." So under the ephod, Aaron wore this blue robe, and around the hem at the bottom, it's alternating a bell and a pomegranate. Um, something else. I don't think this picture has pomegranates. It's all bells. They, they missed that. Um, why pomegranates? I don't know. <laughs> um, possibly uh, the pomegranate was a symbol of life and fertility. Pomegranate, I don't know, living in Canada, it's not the easiest thing to grow. Um, some have gone so far to make the argument the pomegranate tree is actually uh, what the tree of life was. Maybe a little hard to prove, um, but there's that. Um, and bells. Bells, it says, so that he shall not die. Um, 
possibly the idea is you, you don't enter royal presence unannounced. Um, it, was a, it was as a warning going before the Lord. Um, they also would have served as confirmation that he was still alive. As long as the bells are ringing, um, we know that he hasn't done something out of line and been struck down in the Holy of Holies, this sacred place where they went in with fear and trembling. Um, but I think it also added to this idea of for beauty and for glory. You can imagine um, the high priest putting on his robes to enter the tabernacle, and as he went through the camp, you would hear these pure gold bells ringing. This is the sound of our priest going into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Uh, It would have been a beautiful thing. 36 then tells us about the turban and its golden plate, which later is also called the golden crown. Uh, So picking up at uh, verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold, engraved on it like an engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrated as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that, they may be, that, he may be, no, that they may be accepted before the Lord." So Aaron has a turban, which is common headdress in the day, and attached to it on his forehead is this golden plate uh, with kavod Yahavah inscribed on it, holy to the Lord. And then verse 39 gives us two more pieces. You shall weave a coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered uh, with needlework. So a coat or a tunic. This likely went underneath the ephod and underneath the robe. Um, coat maybe isn't the best um, translation there. We think an overcoat. Uh, but then the sash would, be, would wrap around him like a belt and kind of tie it all together. Finally, verse 40 to the end of the chapter describes uh, what is made for Aaron's sons, who, who are not the high priest, but they are lesser priests. They're the regular priests. So verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. You shall put on, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. You shall make them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons, And they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him who is the offspring, for him and his offspring after him. So coats and sashes for all. His sons uh, didn't have turbans, but a cap um, still dressed for glory and for beauty. And then all of them, uh, linen undergarments from hip to thigh to cover their nakedness lest they die. Um, let's, let's just pull the brakes there for one second. Um, fathers of daughters and young ladies in particular. We need to grasp this in our culture. Um, stretching back to the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, it was their nakedness that became a display of their shame. Because of their sin, God... God kills the animal. He covers their nakedness. Immodesty, to to uncover the body, to draw attention, um, is to 
deny and to flaunt our sinfulness and our shame. And so the priests were to be properly covered. Um, That's significant. Um, That helps us understand why the Bible makes a big deal out of modesty. And and that's a hard thing in our culture. And all of this was to be a statute forever. The priests in their royal robes. um, For him and for his sons, for his offspring after him, it was to pass down. Um, Now, we just have to pause and ask forever. um, Where are our priests at? Well, you have to understand Hebrew in which the Old Testament is written is not a scientific language. It's not a precise language. It's a very poetic language. It's a pictorial language. And, and this is a great example of it. The, the word here is olam, and, and it literally means to the horizon, as far as the eye can see. And so it's up to us in the context and looking at the rest of Scripture to say, um, does this mean forever, forever, for eternity, which it often does in Scripture? Um, or does it simply mean for a long time, for, for as far as the eye can see. And, and I think in this case, even looking at how he says forever for your sons and your offspring for generations, that's the point. This is the way it's going to go um, perpetually. Um, and, and Aaron was to appoint his sons and their sons, and, and it would carry on this way for about 1,400 years from that point. Um, but we know from the New Testament that that priesthood does come to an end Now, as we look at all of this material, uh, as we did with the rest of the tabernacle, having understood the instructions, uh, I want to skip ahead to to chapter 39. And I want to read their obedience in building um, these, these garments and putting them together. So chapter 39, and we're just going to plow through uh, to verse 31. From blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And he hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod, attaching the shoulder pieces joined to it at its edges and skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in a setting of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and it was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth when doubled, and they set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row, the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And they were enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and they were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each one engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, 
And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the gold rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of the gold into the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. And they attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two, gold, two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece and on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod. At its seam, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod, they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made a robe of the ephod woven of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in the garment, with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. And on the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around them, around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of fine linen and the caps of fine linen and linen undergarments of of fine twine linen and the sash of fine twine linen of blue and purple scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. They then made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it the inscription like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue and fastened it to the turban above, the, uh, as, above as the Lord had commanded. So there we have it, these holy garments. This is their uniform for entering into the tabernacle. Made for glory and for beauty to stand out and to speak about God. It's so easy for us to read through these passages of turbans and cloaks and mysterious stones and kind of start to zone out, begin to skim through. Or we go the other way and we get into trivial details. What kind of stone was it? And and how did they dye the fabrics? And, And what exactly did this look like? But in all of this, as in all of the New Testament, we need to just keep the bigger picture in mind that God is telling a larger story. He promised Genesis 3.15. With Adam and Eve still standing in the garden, the, the, the taste of the forbidden fruit still on their lips, he promised that he would send a rescuer. God explained how their sin would destroy this perfect world, how it would usher in the reign of decay and death, how it would necessarily cut them off from his presence. This is the world we live in that is broken and painful. This is our sin that that separates us from God, that puts us under his wrath and judgment. And in the middle of that speech, as God is unfolding what will happen in this world, there's a promise that a son would come, that one day he would send a rescuer, a son born of a woman who would undo the curse of sin, who would crush the head of the serpent who would restore this world to its intended glory, and more importantly, who would reconcile us to our Creator, who would would fix that broken 
relationship. And the whole rest of the Bible is telling of man's failure as we try to fix that relationship our own way and God's faithfulness in bringing that rescuer. God didn't stop with just the one promise. He continues to build on it to layer after layer to build it out to show us more and more of who this rescuer would be. It's like a golden thread weaved through the pages of Scripture. Um, And we see it over and over again. As we've looked at the tabernacle, it just screams out, this is who Jesus is. And these priestly garments are no exception. And so uh, at long last, here's point number one told you to bring a lunch um the priestly garments show us that christ is the ideal high priest they show us christ as the ideal high priest the high priest was god's chosen mediator he was the the bridge between the holy god and sinful man and these elaborate clothes that aaron was to wear as the high priest told about that ideal high priest and what he would one day be Right from the outset, we see this rescuer would come from among us. He was one of us. Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel. That's 28.1, right off the beginning. You see, a mediator had to be a representative. If he's going to speak for us, if he's going to stand on our behalf before God, he needs to He needs to represent us. He needs to be one of us. And yet at the same time, we have this impossible problem that all of humanity is in sin. And so it's it's like someone in the bottom of a muddy pit trying to pull someone else out. It doesn't work. This rescuer needs to be from among us, but he also needs to be from above us. And these holy garments, these clothes that that represent the ideal high priest they they paint that so clearly fine twine linen blue purple scarlet yarns gold everywhere what is it it's the holy of holies it's the same fabric this high priest is clothed with a replica of the inside of the holy of holies the very presence of god he's saying this is a man of heaven he bears the marks of the very presence of God and and what Israel in that day I I can I can just imagine they would not have dared to guess at this we we learn that so clearly in the New Testament that's actually what God did Philippians 2 6 Jesus who though he was in the form of God though he was God himself didn't count equality of God a thing to be grasped a thing to be used to his own advantage and taken advantage of, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And and so God himself takes on humanity and becomes both a representative of us and one from above us. He is both fully man and fully God. He was not man. He couldn't stand on our behalf. If he was not God, he couldn't do what was necessary to save us. He's both, and, and not, not a mix of the two, not half man, half God, not, not God in a man's body. He's full humanity and full deity, and, and I'll just let our brains smoke on that a little bit. It's hard to understand, but he is our divine representative. 
who is both us and God, our perfect high priest. And like the high priest, he goes into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and he bears our sin. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus, as the one who is truly holy to the Lord, set apart in perfect sinlessness, went into the Holy of Holies to bear the sin of the people. He brought the blood of the sacrifice from the altar to the atonement cover. That's his role. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what this divine representative accomplishes on our behalf. Uh, But I want to push it just a little bit further. I want you to notice as he goes into the Holy of Holies, what is on his shoulders and his heart? It's the names of the people that he represents. Twice, as he explains the the ephod and the shoulder pieces and then the breast piece with the stones on the front. The Lord is explicit. 28.12 talks about the stones on the shoulder. You shall set the stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then Exodus 28.29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the Holy of Holies to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Think about that. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on his shoulder, written on his heart, on his shoulder as if to say, I will carry you. I will bring you where you cannot go on your own. And on his heart, to say I love you. You're on my heart, permanently engraved as in stone. The high priest offered these, this sacrifice to make atonement, to make reconciliation with God, and he offered the incense, the, the prayers of the people on, on their behalf in the presence of the Lord. And his sacrifice and his prayers are not vague. They're not general. They're specific. They're pointed. They were for the people of Israel by name. And and that's a picture of Jesus as our high priest. We just read in Hebrews 2.17, he made propitiation for the sins of his people. Think about this, Christian. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Revelation 3, uh, sorry, 13:8 speaks of names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, specific names written down. If you're saved, if you have faith in Jesus, it's because your name has been written in his book before he even began creating the world. And Jesus himself as our high priest consistently speaks of his death his sacrifice being for particular people introduction to who jesus is matthew 121 he will save his people from their sin 
John 10, 14, 15, uh, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Ephesians 5.25 uses the, the picture of marriage, the most intimate of relationships. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John 17.9, I'm speaking of the, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I'm praying for them and even makes distinction. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. So Jesus, as our high priest, goes into the presence of God with the names of his people on his shoulder, on his heart, the names of his beloved bride, of his sheep. And he stands for them. And he enters with the, the Urim and the Thummim. The high priest does, symbolic of what Jesus would do. Um, the symbols of God's judgment, God's final decision. Um, not that he's trying to find God's will, but that he comes to declare God's will. That God's will has been revealed. The decision has been made. That by this sacrifice, my people are forgiven. That, that, that those who are guilty are now proclaimed innocent because of the substitute. Sometimes I feel like we think of salvation as if there was some kind of huge faceless corporation that, that was maybe just giving out blank tickets. And, and they're just kind of scattered about, maybe like, like the cereal box prizes when we were kids. And, and, and I was just lucky enough to randomly stumble upon this ticket, and now, now I'm in. But this picture of the shepherd of the sheep, the husband of the wife, the names written on the ephod, tells us no. No, it's more like the owner of that corporation flew up from California and showed up at your doorstep personally with a, with a ticket printed with your name on it, paid for by his personal funds, with, with a room prepared just for you. And he said, I want you, I've decided I want you to come with me on my cruise. Come and be my honored guest. It's not for anybody, it's for you. We're not a number to God. We're not just another face in the crowd to Jesus. You're not just a, an, an anonymous person filling an empty seat in the church. God loved you specifically. Christ died and actually paid for your actual sins on the cross, representing you by name before the Father to reconcile you to God. We've sung of that this morning. And so when Jesus died, he, he didn't just make it possible that you might be saved. He represented you before the Father. And with personal love for you and a perfect knowledge of you, he died for your sin to save you. As Charles Spurgeon says, we say that Christ died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. This is amazing grace. This is the love of our God toward us in our high priest. Because of this, we can say that he was crushed for 
our transgressions. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In the priestly garments, we see Christ, the, the ideal high priest. And we see what Christ has done for us. But next, I think, as we turn to this next section, the consecration of the priests, setting them aside for service, um, we see what that in turn demands of us. Christ, as the ideal high priest, calls us into his service as priests. He sacrificed on our behalf to, to save us from the penalty of death that we deserved. And then he calls us into his service. Look at uh, Exodus 29 with me. This is the ceremony for purifying and installing the priests. Read verses 1 to 9 to start. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them. Consecrate is to, to set apart. That they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. And unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And you shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So the priests were to meet at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're, they're not to go in yet until this ritual is finished. And first they're washed with water, presumably from the wash basin. Then they're clothed with these priestly garments and anointed with oil. And that was a symbol that you've been, you've been chosen by God, you've been set aside. Uh, verse 7 speaks of Aaron explicitly. At the end of chapter 8 mentioned that they were all to be anointed by, with oil. Uh, and then there were these three sacrifices that were made for them. First is a bull, and that picks up in verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, and then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part in the blood of the bull and put it in the horns, on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys of fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Uh, I don't think there were any um, animal rights activists in the priesthood. Um, this is messy and, and, and somewhat offensive, and I think that's on purpose. They put their hands on the head of the bull, symbolically saying, um, this bull is taking my place, he's standing in my place, he's bearing my guilt. And the bull was to be killed and burnt outside the camp. Again, there's another beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Christ here. Um, outside the camp is 
significant. That's a place of shame, of exile. If you sinned in some grievous way and you were, you were cut off from the people of Israel, you were put outside the camp. If you had leprosy, if you were unclean, you went outside the camp. It's a place of shame. And Jesus was taken to Golgotha, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Hebrews puts it outside the camp. And so we're called to go to him outside the camp, to bear shame uh, in following him, uh, from shame from this world. These priests were sinful men, and they needed to be atoned for before they could serve in the holy place. Next was the sacrifice of these two rams. Uh, the first ram is uh, a regular burnt offering, and that's verses 15 to 18. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. And then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. The second ram was a ram of ordination. And this one is a little bit different. This is a little unusual. The, the, the burnt offering, they were to do two of those every day. Um, the ram of ordination is in verse 19 and following. You shall take the other ram. The ram Aaron, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on their thumbs of their right hand, and on the great toe of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments with it. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. This sacrifice was to set them apart, to make them holy to the Lord to commit them to the service of God. And the, the right ear and the right thumb and the right big toe were to be marked with blood as to say, uh, I'm His, all of me. I, I, will, I will hear and listen to what He says. I will give my hands to His service. I'll give my feet in going where He calls me to go. I'm all His from top to bottom. And the ram was placed on the altar. And verse 22 picks up then, You shall take also the fat of the ram and the fat of the tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And she'll put all of these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. The mention of the fat uh, speaks of the choicest pieces. It's the good stuff. Um, I totally agree with that. I love a good marbled steak. Um, and the, uh, all the talk of the the entrails, the, the kidney, and the liver. Um, I think these are specifically mentioned because these are parts that were used in their culture for witchcraft, for fortune-telling. 
And so they're offering these sacrifices so as to say, this is the best parts of what we have. Our best is given to you, Lord. And, and our, our hope and our sense of control over the future, we're, we're giving that to you. We're not, we're not trying to go other ways around you. We're giving it up to you. But not all of this animal was to be burned. Uh, some of it was eaten. Uh, starting in verse 26. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast for a wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron and his sons. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, and they shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The sons who succeed him as priest, who come into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them for seven days. And you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in, holy, in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the entrance of the tent of meeting, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination of the bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. And so having had their sin covered by the bull and the burnt offering, the priests now took the breast and the thigh of this ordination offering uh, and they sat down together and ate it. They, they partook of the sacrifice. And, and this was to be an ongoing thing as the people would bring uh, a peace offering. Um, the priests would eat part of it. That's how they made their living. That was their due. And anything left over, they burned because it was holy. It was not for any outsider. No one uh, who was not of the priestly line was to eat of that sacrifice. And this was their ongoing practice going forward. And then verses uh, 35 to 37 tell us how this whole process then is to be repeated for seven days. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar, and then make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So these priests are God's chosen representatives. These sacred ones who entered into his presence, their whole lives are dedicated to him, um, representing the people to God, uh, and then being God's representative to the people. And so, again, we ask, where are priests today? Well, we know the high priest is Jesus. Who are the priests? Do the Catholics have it right? Should we have a, a priestly order, a group of men who are, who are set aside to the service of the Lord, or, or is that me? Am I the priest? Are, are pastors basically priests today? And the answer is neither. As God brought the fulfillment of these promises from the Old Testament into the New Covenant, um, there's a new priesthood 
and it's you. It's us. We are called priests. We call it the priesthood of all believers. Think about it. If you're a Christian, you're a priest. In the Old Covenant, how was a priest made? What was the the picture of it, the, the physical thing that God laid out to teach them what it would be to be a priest? They were to be washed with water clothed with priestly garments, anointed with oil. A sacrifice was made to set them apart, and then they ate together of the sacrifice. Under the new covenant, the the spiritual reality of these things, the fulfillment of it, it's us. It's you who have been washed with pure water. Right? Titus 3.5 talks about we've been washed by the washing of regeneration. We, We see it in the picture of baptism. It's us who have been clothed with these holy garments of the high priest. Think about it. These priests reflected the high priest. They didn't have all of his glory, but they were like many high priests. They put on these garments. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're called Christians, little Christs. He is our righteousness He is our priestly garment that we put on. And we're anointed, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who makes us holy, who sets us apart for His service. And the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, was made for us, atoning for us, and we all gather together and eat of that sacrifice every time we take communion. We are the priesthood. Set apart, made holy. There's no hierarchy in Christianity. There is Jesus who is our great shepherd. We have elders in the church who are from among us, who who rely on him to try to give leadership, but we are all priests. Set aside by God. Washed, clothed, anointed, atoned for. And that means that your salvation, the the, the fact that you have come to faith in Christ, means that you were saved for a purpose, for service. Not not just saved to to sit back and wait and someday I get to go to heaven. He's, He's enlisted you in His priesthood. You've been brought into the work of the Lord to serve Him, set apart. So as priests in the new covenant, what, what sacrifices do we bring? Well, Romans 12.1 speaks of one sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. To understand the mercies of God, to understand His gospel, the right response is to say, I'm all yours. My body is a sacrifice offering to you, God. It's not my own anymore. Like the priests were marked by their ear, their thumb, their big toe to, to symbolize their whole being being dedicated to the Lord. There's no half Christian. There's no saved, just not, I don't know, transformed. To walk with Him, to be His priest, is, is to be set apart completely for Him. Our whole lives given in His service as a sacrifice. You're not your own. 
Your life is not about serving you and, and trying to fulfill your hopes and dreams. You're a priest. You're chosen. You're set aside for this sacred duty. So what does it mean, this sacred duty, what, to, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Well, first, it means to bring worship to the Lord. Uh, that's what a priest did. They were the ones who brought worship to God in the sacrificial system. Hebrews 13, 15, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So there's one. A sacrifice of praise to our God, lips that acknowledge His name. And he carries on, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So it's, a, it's worship through speaking, and it's worship through living. Living a life that is loving toward others, of self-sacrifice, of holiness. Both of these are pleasing to the Lord. So first we bring worship to the Lord in word and in deed. We present ourselves to the Lord. But secondly, as priests, we also represent God to man. We are also His ambassadors. And and when, when people look at us, they ought to see Christ. They ought to see us clothed with glory and with beauty, this, this garment that makes them see something's different here. This person represents the, the holy of holies. There's a, there's a glimmer of heaven in this person. There's a, the scent of Christ is on them. It points them to the goodness of God. And we're to be actively calling the world to come to worship through, through our deeds. We live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and worship God on the day that he visits us but also with our mouths, 1 Peter 2.9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We go out proclaiming. I, I have been set aside as a priest. Come and see how wonderful this God is. See his excellencies. And then 2 Corinthians 5 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's our job. To be ambassadors sent out with this message of reconciliation that the, the high priest has offered himself for the forgiveness of sins. Come in repentance and faith. There's salvation. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation with God. That's our priestly duty. To go out into the world as ambassadors proclaiming the excellencies of our God. Because God's not done yet. Just as Jesus said to the Jews in in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That, That process is still happening. The good shepherd is still gathering his sheep. 
He's still calling others to, to come into the fold. And we're told in Romans 10, 14 how he does it. Yes, God could have just brought them all in. He, he could have everyone just pick up a Bible one day and read it and come. Or he could have everyone just one day understand the fullness of the gospel. He could have done it that way. But he chose not to. He chose to include us in that process. And so Romans 10, 14 says, How will they call on him they've not believed? And how will they believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? He will gather his lost sheep. But he uses men and women like you and I to do it. Set apart servants to be his voice, to proclaim this good news. And having been reconciled, having been loved and redeemed by our great high priest, as we, as we grow in the understanding of what it means that we have been saved, that ought to boil over in us to proclaim this great message to the world and to live our lives uh, sanctified to him as his priests. Let's pray. Father, your grace is astounding. Your mercy toward us in your anointed one, the Messiah, the great high priest, who bore our sins, who bore my burden to Calvary and bled and died for me. What hope, what amazing thing, God, that you chose each of us who come to you in faith, that, that, that you were at work far before and that we can have confidence in our place before you, in our, in our salvation purchased by this perfect high priest. And Father, I pray that that would then overflow in us to go out as your priest, to, to put our lives on the altar as a worship for you. God, that from top to bottom we would be yours, sanctified, consecrated for you, that our, our lives would be uh, for beauty and for glory, that others might see your glory. And Lord, that your message of reconciliation would be on our lips as we call out um, this great gospel, proclaiming um, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.